Welcome to the All Souls Episcopal Parish in Berkeley's Sermon Podcast. Today is the third Sunday after the Epiphany, and we hear from Dan Carlson, our seminarian, who preached from the lectionary, which this week was Nehemiah 8, 1 to 3, 5 to 6, 8 to 10, and Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 21. As always, you can find more sermons or information about All Souls on our homepage, which is allsoulsparish.org. So before we dig into today's texts, I want us to start by imagining a map. Bear with me, I used to be a high school history teacher. It's going to get a little history teacher-y. So okay, so imagine this is the ancient Near Eastern world. And over here on the left, boy, this is hard to do in reverse, uh, is the Mediterranean Ocean. And over here on the right is Mesopotamia, modern Iraq. And roughly in the middle is this itty-bitty bit of coastal territory, which is home to the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, the protagonists of the Hebrew Bible, or Old Testament. So this map gets more interesting when you start to notice what surrounds little Israel on all sides. So down here, you have got ancient Egypt, one of the superpowers of that world. Over here, you have got Assyria, Babylon, and Persia, superpowers of other eras. Up here, roughly, is Asia Minor, which is home to the Hittites and their successors. And if you haven't heard of those guys, trust me, they were huge back in the day. And eventually, Asia Minor is going to become the route by which Greek influence begins to really flow into the region. So directly to the left, right, over here, of Israel is mostly uncrossable desert. What that means is that if these major superpowers that I'm pointing out want to interact with each other, either peacefully or less peacefully, really the only way they can do it is by coming straight through Israel's yard. Israel is built right on top of the crossroads of the ancient Near East. That is where they put down roots. So this is a bit like me deciding to camp out in the middle of the I-880. I may manage to get my tent up, but it's not going to be long before I get flattened by a semi. There's just too much heavy traffic. And that is exactly what happened to Israel and Judah. The semi which flattened the northern kingdom of Israel was the Assyrians in 721, and Judah was flattened a little later by the Babylonians in 587. For these superpowers, it just became super annoying to have to deal with these little kingdoms sitting on such valuable real estate. It was easier for them to just conquer the region and be done with it. It's difficult for us today to imagine just how traumatizing that trivial conquest for these superpowers must have been for the people of Israel. Israel's identity was profoundly shaped by the idea that they were special, that they were intended for something truly great. Their God had delivered them from oppression so that they could be a light to these surrounding nations. They were to show the world a different 
and better way. A great example of this kind of thing is the idea of the year of Jubilee, which can be found in the book of Leviticus. The Jubilee laws said that every 50 years, all land ownership in Israel would revert back to the roughly equal allotments handed out to each family at the founding of the nation. People could buy, sell, trade land however they liked during the 49 intervening years, but this was all essentially a temporary lease. Every family would get its ancestral land back on year 50. Additionally, all Israelite debt slaves would be freed during that 50th year. A general amnesty was declared. There was no way, essentially, under the Jubilee system for economic oppression to turn into a permanent caste system. Economic advantages were real, but they were temporary. Inequality was only to exist for a time. God was fundamentally opposed to a society with a permanent underclass. There is, perhaps unsurprisingly, no historical evidence that the Jubilee laws were ever fully implemented. Yet the Hebrew prophets, figures like Isaiah and Amos, continually appealed to Jubilee as a picture of God's will for Israel. Jubilee was the model towards which Israel was called. And who knows, maybe the leaders of Israel actually meant to get around to it, you know, at some point. Yet in practice, history shows that little Israel largely copied the customs and ways of the surrounding empires. And then one day, those same powerful neighbors came along and destroyed them. The dream of a different people was crushed. The light to the nations went out. When the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem in 587, they deported large numbers of the Judean people, essentially the middle and upper classes, leaving only the poorer folk to work the land. For about a century, these exiles lived over here in the heart of Babylonian territory. But eventually the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians. And it turned out that the Persians were actually pretty nice as far as ancient world conquering empires go. They encouraged displaced people to return to their traditional homelands and to rebuild. And that, finally, is where today's reading from Nehemiah comes into this story. The Israelite exiles have returned to Jerusalem in this reading. They've rebuilt the temple. They are making serious progress on the city walls. But there's still something missing. Many, perhaps most, of the exiles have lost touch with the story of Israel. They've forgotten what this temple is all about. They've forgotten that whole light to the nation's business. The priestly and scribal families spent much of the exile over here in Babylon editing and revising the people's traditions into a single narrative. Most scholars agree that is the era where the Hebrew Bible, or Old Testament as we know it, takes form. And in our reading today from Nehemiah, that text is finally read publicly for the people. And not only is it read, 
it is interpreted for them. There is teaching involved. The people collectively remember who they are, and that revelation knocks them flat. The words of Torah, including the Jubilee laws of Leviticus, tell them that another world is possible. There is weeping among these people. They remember what they were called to be. About 500 years pass between the Nehemiah reading and today's gospel reading from Luke. During those centuries, once again, the little land of Israel is dominated by foreign empires, colonial powers, bickering internal factions. Jesus grows up in a world under Roman colonial oppression. They come from Italy, it's like roughly over here. At about the time of Jesus' birth, the big city just to the north of his small village of Nazareth, a place called Sephorus, actually rose up in revolt against the Romans, and they were crushed. The city of Sephorus was burned, and the population was sold into slavery. It is very possible that much of Joseph and Jesus' carpentry work throughout Jesus' formative years was connected to the rebuilding of the city of Sephorus. Jesus grew up in a world filled with folks telling firsthand stories of massacre, destruction, and horrific abuse. Jesus grew up in a region reeling from the brutal violence of Rome. So we can understand why the folks in Nazareth are eager for a word of hope under these conditions. Our reading today comes at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. He's just getting started in his work of teaching and traveling around, and he has returned to his hometown to teach in the synagogue. People are eager to hear what the hometown boy who's been making it good out in the big world has to say. And this little bit in Luke's gospel becomes critical. It becomes a space where Jesus essentially gives a mission statement for everything else that is going to happen as the gospel unfolds. Like the people in Nehemiah's time, this crowd at the synagogue has lived through a horrific trauma, a period of rebuilding, and they are now eager to hear their story, to give them hope. And here is what Jesus reads from the prophet Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is taken from the beginning of what today we would call Isaiah chapter 61. Words that most scholars agree were written for the returning exiles of roughly Nehemiah's era. But these same words now end up describing Jesus' mission 500 years later. Good news for the poor and liberation for the oppressed. We might also take note of what Jesus does not highlight as his central mission. Jesus does not proclaim that he has come to bring a privatized spirituality or an escape from the troubles of this world into a blessed afterlife. He is not peddling an opiate to the traumatized masses. Jesus says he is empowered by the spirit to change the world. 
And he does this by grounding the people more deeply in the story of Israel. I want to draw our attention particularly to two bits of what Jesus says. The first is that he is proclaiming good news to the poor. The Greek word translated as poor here, which I'm about to mispronounce, patokoi, is interesting. It does carry the sense of economic destitution that you would expect, but the larger thrust of that particular word is the idea of being fearful and without power. So think about that for a minute. Christ has come to bring good news to the fearful and the powerless. In that sense, the poor becomes a much bigger category. Consider our own culture among the wealthiest in the world, and yet one where many are deeply dominated by fear and a sense of powerlessness. Christ brings good news for these people. Yet, in another sense, the poor becomes very, very specific. Those who are economically destitute and saddled with crushing debt. In a culture like ours, where material wealth is so tightly connected to having power over your own life, those without money are frequently without power. And it is a fearful thing to be powerless in the world. The second bit that I want us to notice is that Jesus has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Remember when I said that the prophets of Israel, including Isaiah, love to invoke the image of Jubilee? Well, this passage from Isaiah that Jesus is reading is one of those passages. The phrase year of the Lord's favor literally means the year of Jubilee. This is the ancient vision of Israel, the time when the oppressed are freed from all their debt and the economy resets. This is talking about the year when Israel will treat wealth in a way that is absolutely unthinkable by all the other nations of the world. This is the moment when Israel will show the world what God most desires. Jesus says that these ancient words are being fulfilled now in his ministry. The notion that Jubilee is an admirable idea and somebody should really get around to that someday, that ends with Jesus. The delaying is over. The time for justice is now. The time for ending oppression is now. That is what Jesus says he is all about. I should add that if you continue reading this story in Luke's gospel, it is not particularly well received in Nazareth. By verse 29, his hometown crowd is actually trying to chuck him off a cliff. Don't worry, he gets away. Why does the hometown crowd turn on him like this? My suspicion is that if we went around in our churches today and we told people the time has finally come to surrender your wealth and your accumulated privileges for the good of the poor, something similar might happen. I suspect that many folks, when considering biblical texts like these, may wonder how any of this possibly relates to us in 21st century America. I mean, these texts are lovely little historical time capsules, but they were written for very specific circumstances. And of course, this is a totally valid point. These texts were written for people in very specific circumstances. 
So I suppose the easiest way for us to use them today would be if we could locate some folks who had been through a massive traumatizing disruption of some kind. Perhaps they were scattered due to a disaster which caused a lot of death and fear. Perhaps these people are trying to regather, to rebuild their community, but they're just not sure how to do it. So much seems lost now. So much seems uncertain. They are trying to remember their story. What was the point of this temple anyway? Man, if we could locate some of those people, I think these texts would have a lot to say. Thank you.